Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It's an advertising network on the internet where you can reach book people, people who read books, people who like art and music and movies and that kind of stuff, people who read. Litbreaker.com is where you go to find out more. Find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature, uh, culture sites like Large Hearted Boy. The list goes on. You can advertise on the full network. You can paste your ads on the internet across a wide range of sites. You can also pick the sites you want individually and do it piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. For more information, go to litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person and just one. All right, all right, all right, all right, right. right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is the Other People Podcast. This is the Other People Show. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listing. I'm in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. My guest today is David Berenbaum. He's a screenwriter based right here in Los Angeles, California, best known for his work on the movie Elf. You know that movie Elf with Will Ferrell, directed by John Favreau? It's a Christmas classic. David Berenbaum wrote that movie. He wrote Elf. He's the guy who wrote Elf. He was here. He sat down with me. We had a conversation about his life and work. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, I do have some listener mail before we get started. Let me try to track that down. Hang on a second. There's a uh, listener named Charlie who wrote to me. He says, Dear Brad, I've recently finished writing and editing my first novel, and I'd like to pursue the possibility of its publication, but the prospect of getting an agent is overwhelmingly intimidating. Being 24, I think I might be younger than most first-time novelists. Sorry if that sounded like a humble brag. So I feel like my age might be a hindrance because I don't have any sort of literary resume to include in a query letter and that I won't be taken seriously as a writer of literary fiction because I'm too young. And beyond this, I have no idea what to even look for in an agent. I realize that might be a lot to unpack, but do you have any advice? Thanks for your time. Love the show. All the best, Charlie. P.S. I miss seeing pictures of Walter on Instagram. Hope he's doing well. Walter's my dog, 
for those of you who don't know. So thanks, Charlie. I appreciate the letter. I'm not the authority on this, but uh, it seems like being young is not necessarily a hindrance. If your book is good, and moreover, if an agent feels like it has real market potential, like it's going to sell copies, like there's something to sell, they'll represent you. You don't have to have some huge resume. I think a lot of agents and a lot of publishers like youth. They love discovering young talent, publishing young talent, representing young talent. There's an excitement in that. Our culture loves youth, right? American culture, we love youth, especially in media culture, media and entertainment. So I would look at your, your youth as, as being more of a strength than a weakness. I think it ultimately just comes down to how good the book is. Now, most 24-year-olds, the novel's not going to be very good, I think statistically speaking. You could easily be the exception. I don't know. I haven't read it. So there may be uh, a case to be made for you know pressing pause, having friends read the book, getting some good uh, some good advice and counsel from trusted readers or whatever to make sure that whatever you're submitting is worth submitting. Or just you know if you really have faith in yourself and you think that you've done it well, then give it a shot. And I think in terms of looking for agents, you just got to find somebody who really gets your work. I mean, obviously you want somebody who is uh, ethical, but publishing gen generally speaking is a gentleman and gentlewoman's business. There's not a lot of sketchy people, at least not that I know of. I'm sure there are some, but I don't feel like it's totally loaded with uh, creepy people. So I think, you know, looking at other authors in a sim of a similar age or a little bit older who uh, are represented, find out who their agents are. You, you know, you don't want to just submit your work to any old agent. You want to find out if they represent work and authors who do a uh, similar, uh, who are similar to you in terms of sensibility and don't query more than one agent at the same agency. That's bad form like pitting colleagues against one another. So do your homework Figure out which agents uh, might be uh, sympathetic to your work and give it a shot. Or have like three or four friends read your book beforehand. And when they all tell you it's an unintelligible mess, take a step back. I hope that helps. I appreciate the letter, Charlie. I wish you luck. Uh, if anybody out there wants to write to me, my address, my email address is letters at other ppl.com letters at other ppl.com. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest one more time is David Barenbaum. He's a screenwriter uh, who wrote the movie Elf. Had a great time talking with him. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is David Barenbaum. I remember in early age... Uh, well, we were one of the early HBO subscribers, so it like came in when I was like, you know, eight or seven, and it was like, oh, here's a babysitter, and you plop yourself <laughs> down, uh, you know, and just start watching the movies. You know, I remember getting those little HBO pamphlets. I don't know if you had HBO oh, yeah. back in the day, and the slow motion like crawl over the neighborhood. Remember the uh, old intro for? I remember that like as a child. Yeah, I remember that going over the neighborhood exactly, and the music building and went over the hill, and then with the rainbow kind of thing. And yeah, that right. was like. Uh, my sad life back in the day. <laughs> uh, it hasn't really changed that much, quite frankly. You're just um, now getting paid for it. Right? Exactly. Now I've, I've transformed into a profession, so it's, it was all worth it sitting in front of the TV. My brother was like, what are you doing? You're watching all these movies all the time. I'm like, don't worry. It'll pay off. Well, and I it's know. also, it's also um, I, I think that like a lot of w- what we get from having movies on TV and from being obsessive as young people when it comes to film and television is repeat viewings. Yeah. Like I think of the story, um, like I think there's like the, the famous story about Scorsese being like a sickly child yeah. and watching like the same movie over and over again. I think you get something from that. You totally get, it's a language. It's a, it's a built in language that you, you know, study when you're young, like anything, it kind of absorbs into your bloodstream, you know, how it works, you know, the rhythm of these things, especially movies that are working for you. You don't know why they're working at like a young age, but you just know you're enjoying that movie for some reason. And it really gets in your system and you understand, you get the, the, the film rhythm of why, you know, I can watch this movie endlessly what, on a loop. What are some movies from your childhood that were really sticky for you? Uh, I mean, I guess for the big one for me was Raiders of the Lost Ark. That really, you know, uh, hit at a good age for me. And I love that uh, genre. And, you know, all of the 80s films were big influences, like the Amblin films of uh, Back to the Future and Gremlins and Goonies and that kind of thing. And then, you know, Ghostbusters. It was like a great decade for cool popcorn filmmaking like hollywood blockbusters with heart and um you know that they do to a degree today but for some reason back then probably because you're young 
those are the things that cemented things for me. And later, you know, it was like Coen Brothers and Woody Allen and stuff like that. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, I want to say Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my earliest theater experiences or earliest like remembered theater experiences. Yeah. I remember seeing it and it was, I remember it was one of my first pitches because I remember I saw it. I was, then I was playing like a game later on and my friends they said, Oh, what was the movie about? I was like, it was awesome. It was about this guy. He was looking for stuff. There was a big rock trying to kill him. Um, uh, he hates yeah, snakes. Yeah, he hates snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Um, and, uh, you know, just sticking in your craw. There's something, there was something magical about that movie uh, that, you know, go back to theater again and again and again. Was I just watching? I want to say there was some sort of, it's like these things that crawl around on the internet where it was like they had made Raiders of the Lost Ark into black and white, and they were encouraging people to watch it on silent. Did you see this? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. It, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I mean, every shot tells a story. You know, that's what they say in film. You know, it's a visual medium. Tell a story visually. And that film, certainly, you can tell, you know, just it was a masterful class. And I, I think after, you know... Spielberg wanted to do it on a on a budget because he'd come off of some films that he'd overspent on great movies, but they'd just gone a little over budget. So they, you know, I think George Lucas sat him down saying, hey, we're going to do this on a budget. It'll be great. It'll be like the old, you know, B movies and we're going to just you know, shoot it hard and fast. And, and, he, and he went in and he did it and they cracked it out really fast. And amazingly, what came out was what came out. It's like a beautifully rendered film on like, every conceivable level well it's like casablanca i want to say the guys who wrote casablanca wrote it in like two weeks did they the <laughs> yeah. epstein brothers yeah i didn't know they wrote it that fast i want to say i mean i could be misremembering but I, i'm pretty sure it was like a really like yeah you know, they still play right like everyone comes to rick or something like that yeah. um and yeah well they did a pretty good job well yeah uh and and for you like as a child like you see this movie um obviously you start you continue to go to the theater you continue to be an HBO addict. At what at what age did you start to think like this is what I want to do? Was it that early? It was that early. It was immediately. It was um uh you know, my it was yeah, when I was like ten or eleven. My brother I have an older brother who's eight years older than I am. He's also um he's a film editor and he's done tons of stuff, tons of movies, like tons what? of TV. Anything we uh, used to um edit for the Coen brothers, he edited all the Sex of the Cities, and then he did the Sex of the City movies. He's a very successful uh, film editor, won you know Emmys and Ace award, Eddie Awards, and so he's a pretty big deal. Um, so he's eight years older, and he had um, he invested in Super Eight equipment. So he had the projector and he had the camera. So he was making movies when he was in high school, cutting film, cutting film, and you know we do you know do stupid things where you're making. Uh, films with like uh, you know Superman, you know the little you know Batman dolls and stuff like that, and you're having like stop motion things going on, and you know like he was Superman, and you throw a duck at him, and you know he's flying, and you just turn the camera over to make him fly. You know how does a man fly in Philadelphia in 19 you know 80? That's how you fly. You turn right. the camera over, and you get a blue background. That's magic. Um, so uh, so he had all the stuff. So at you know I saw that happening, and I was like, that's awesome. So. Uh, at a very early age, I was borrowing his equipment and making Super 8 films with my friends. and Not dissimilar know, to Spielberg. That's what he was doing, right? 
I believe he was also making, you know, Super 8 film. Yeah, I mean, from, you know, that guy's pretty visually adept, I would say. Yeah. He's pretty much had it going on from a young age. But I was, like, um, tinkering, you know. It was a, a learning process, and it was great to get out there and, you know, you know, back then, it's not the instant gratification of, you know, you have an iPhone and you shoot it and you see it and edit it the same day. It was like you shoot it, pray to God you got the shots, go send it away, you know, a week later, you know, you go back to the Kodak place, it gets developed and you like... You know, run your you know three minute thing through a projector. It's like, oh, okay. It's a crazy. Like I went to film school, and we were that was the very last couple of years of cutting actual celluloid. Yeah, it seems like ancient history. You know what I'm saying? Like oh it's just, God. yeah. It's I a man. I remember I went to NYU and. Uh, you know, sitting there for hours on my steam back, and you know, splicing and splicing and. You know, it got messy with those little, you know, you had to be so, uh, you know, very meticulous with your little tape, you know. And I'm not that guy. Like, that was part of what drove me to want to be a writer is, like, I felt like that part of the process was more me. Like, getting dealing with the machines and all of the mechanical aspects of filmmaking. Right. It's a lot to master. Like, the, the technology, especially today, I mean, all the digital technology. You talk about films like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um Maybe not it specifically, but of its ilk, you know, mm -hmm. Ghostbusters. Um, yeah. Like if something like that, like I guess they they remade it a couple years ago or whatever. Yeah. But uh, you really have to know a lot. And I guess they, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean about special effects, digital filmmaking. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you get, you know, I think if you know what you want, and you get, you know, obviously someone like Spielberg is incredibly is a visual maestro. But if you, uh, friends of mine have made, you know larger films who are not proficient in that but if you get you know great visual guys you go i want this and they go okay don't worry about that you just shoot it like this and we'll take care of it later you get you know they've teamed them with great people right. who can sort of walk them through a process and as long as you have a vision of how what you want to see eventually it you can get it there yeah and and so in your um an NYU film student? I am. Thinking yeah. that you're going to be a director? I did. I, yeah, I went to film school to totally make movies. Um, and, yeah, that was my focus. I was, uh, you know, I loved it because they just kind of threw you out there in the street with a camera. And that's all I kind of wanted. And uh, so it was great to learn that way. You're learning through trial and error. That's all I wanted to do was make movies. So that's all I did in college was just crank them out. Were they any good? Uh, they had funny ideas. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I would say they were quite there yet. Um, but uh, they all they all had you know uh, interesting, funny ideas to them. And you know, I wasn't you know it was like I was shooting the you know cinematography, so I was like not proficient that way. I needed like some guys and like so I shot a comedy and like I overexposed the thing because I didn't know what I was doing. Like um. And it came back, and we had this Russian professor going, eh, I, I think I know what's going on, but it's a little bright. And I said, oh, well, you know, it's light comedy. And he goes, oh, you were taking this to another level. Um, I'm like, yeah. And he's like, A. I'm like, great. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, NYU was great for just throwing you out there on the street in, you know, back then at least. Uh, I don't know what's going on there now. Um 
But I went as undergrad there and just, you know, making 16 millimeter films, which is super fun. How did you, how did you measure up against the other students? Cause I, I, I went to film school, uh, at the university of Colorado. Like I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. Um, <laughs> Like it was like it was. Were you a good skier? At least yeah, no. Oh, well, from what were you doing in Colorado then? I don't know. Like, smoking pot. Okay, good. But uh, it was like an exper- It was like Stan Brackage. You know, it was like right. experimental film. Yeah, that was sort of like what the whole thing was about there. But a lot of the students wanted to do obviously, like you know, young eighteen-year-old, nineteen-year-old students want to make narrative films. Yeah. Um, but I just remember, like, you know, you talk about going out into the street with a camera. Uh, like I remember just going out and like. Like film, filming a squirrel at the park. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. You know? <laughs> I hear Squirrel at the Park is a great movie. Don't don't undersell yourself. So, but I mean, but the, the point is that I guess like a lot of the student films were like that. You know, it's like like how advanced was your film grammar? Did you, have- you know, I my instinct was always comedy. Uh, I you know. I love certain genre films like Raiders, like we talked about. Uh, the but the, the films I was making were comedies. Like I did um, a film, uh, you know, based on uh, The Shining, but it was in the Russian Tea Room. So uh, it was like over the course of one evening, and like the the Torrance family walks in, and it's like appetizer over black screen, and it's like it goes crazy over one meal, and the and like Danny's like. Tea rum, tea rum. Uh, and so I was making little comedy things. That was my instinct. But the people around me were making dark, searing, film, like a lot of suicides. Right. Like you would sit there in class and go, you know, what's the suicide film of the day? Um, and there were like, like eight of them. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe I should do like, you know, go one of these, you know, darker routes and you know i love film noir at the time so like as my um thesis film with my uh with a buddy of mine made a you know a film noir movie um that is very you know it puts a certain spell over you but it's not really i wouldn't say my calling card um it was i think you watch it today it's like a very you know, it puts you sort of in a trance, uh, in a, you know, it's black and white and it's like Venetian, dark. Venetian blinds, the whole thing, like the, all the tropes of, yeah, all the tropes, you know, is, you know, it's femme fatale, you know, married to an older guy, gets the younger guy to knock him off. And it's like just how she's going to get rid of him. And, uh, you know, it follow the same tropes and, but it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's my thing. You know, I, I'm more of a, instinctual comedic guy right there's no comedy in that yeah i made a horror of all things i made a horror movie in that was like my thesis or my big junior year film and then when we screened it everyone laughed like it was a comedy <laughs> well there you go <laughs> just claim just take just go thank you yes just go yes <laughs> totally intentional but it was more like confused laughter it was like what the fuck is this you know but there were moments of it that were like actually um like that was like, you know, it was reflexive. You can't fake laughter. You know what I'm saying? Like that's right. just what came out of people. Um, and then, you know, you talk about people in film school, all these like young people having this, uh, like dark impulse, I guess people want to make serious art or there's some sort I, I of, I think like, there's a certain, it, to be taken seriously. I think they were trying to be artists maybe, um, especially at NYU. Um, did you go to, did you go to school with a lot of people who then went on to work in the business? You know, I went to school with, 
Um, some for a lot of people came out here after school, and you know, once they're in the business for a while, they're like, "Okay, this is not really for me. It's time to go to law school." Um, uh, but yeah, I made one school with some people, friends of mine. One guy produced Argo, um, uh, and a smattering of people here, there, doing things, but a lot of them just kind of fell away. Um, well, I think about like the, there's a quote, I think it's from Jerry Seinfeld where he says that, you know, he's like the people who make it in show business are the ones who, um, you know, it's like they'll die if they don't or something like that. Like you have to, you know, like what I, I, you know, like what else, I don't know what else to do. I like, you know, this is kind of like what I do, you know, it's, I don't have a plan B here. Um, it's, uh, I didn't think I had a choice then. I don't have a choice now. It's like. I just keep going, you know, and you, the people who kept going out here, you know, eventually found a niche, you know, where they fit in. And so, so let's talk about it. Okay. So you get out of NYU, you come immediately to Los Angeles. I got out of NYU. I, um, stayed in New York for a year trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this thing in New York? And, uh, you know, once you get out of school, it was, it's sort of a disconcerting thing. You're like, all right, well, Okay, here we go. What's now? Yeah. Uh, what's going on? School's pretty nice. Yeah. It's like, oh, wait, I don't give them a card, and then I go into a cafeteria, and they feed me. I actually have to pay for food now. It's like, <laughs> what is this thing? And um, so, yeah, get out. And it's like, where do I? Where do you go now? So I stayed in New York for a year trying to figure it out, and I thought, all right, well, time to, time to move to L.A., because this is just – that's where – people are going and that's where i think this business is i can't figure this out in new york uh so packed up uh me and a friend of mine took two cars out here to la and um what do your parents think of this uh my mom said you know said you know she was all for it she was like well good luck let's see how this goes so supportive supportive not, totally like, supportive. not terrified trying to convince you otherwise no, I mean, I had, like I said, I had an older brother in the business and, oh, you know, right. my, you know, I, this is what I wanted to do from a young age. So it was not like I, it was like a fly by night thing. It was like I was, this is my, how I was breathing and living and, you know, doing everything. So it was, was, was your dad in the picture or my dad passed away at an early age? Oh, he did. Yeah. I'm so sorry. it's my mom raising three of us. Oh, wow. And my middle brother is very successful. A uh, guy who is in mortgage back financing in New York. So none of you turned out, like all of you turned out, like your mom must have done a hell of a job. Yes. Thank you, mom. Good work. I mean, come on. That's, yeah. a, that's raising, raising kids with, you know, on your, like three kids on your own, three boys. Yeah. Three that's boys. A, that's quite a task. It was quite a task. You did a good job. Had a couple of jobs, you know, it was a juggling act, like single mom trying to get by, you know, she yeah. did a great job. Mm -hmm. So we all, yeah, we all somehow got, uh, got our wings and got out of there. And, and, and so you get here, you've got your older brother in the business who sort of, I'm imagining gave you some pointers. Yeah. I mean, he was finding his way and, you know, he had done a lot of assisting, editing and i'd been in a few rooms with him while he was working on things and you know seeing how that sort of worked and around like a lot of cool filmmakers uh like who uh he was you know like an assistant editor on like raising arizona he was uh you know um he was associate editor on like you know miller's crossing and then 
on Barton Fink. What, what does that mean? Like, if he's an assistant editor, that just means he's assisting with the editing? Is he sitting in the bay with the Coen brothers? Yeah, I mean, they had a full... At that time, they had a full-fledged uh, guy who was their full editor. Um, Don't they have, like, Roderick Janes? Is that their, is them. That's Th- them. That's their pseudonym. That's yes. their, and they, they edit their own movies? Now they edit their own movies. Now they're it's their own thing completely but back in the day you know my brother was with them and and i think they must have i I don't know what they're doing now but they must have he taught them everything (laughs) yes yes he did yeah i mean those guys are uh amazing you know i was i was in awe to be in the room with them even then even then i was like oh my god i love these movies they're awesome i Um, I remember seeing raising arizona in sixth grade seventh grade and that's about how old i was um and it was just it was immediately you're like this is different yeah it was unlike anything you know yeah i love their style i love you know how they're pulling everything together it was like a stylized highly stylized comedy i love their characters i loved everything the way they did things it was just like wow i would like to echo some of this well and it seems like all the great filmmakers and maybe all the great artists in any discipline or any art form um the the coen brothers martin scorsese spielberg like they just have such like an encyclopedic knowledge of film history like all the grammar seems to be packed into their heads they know all the shots. Tarantino's that way. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he, that they're referencing in their brains so many different films across so many different genres and um, you know across international lines. Like they just they've seen so much. Yeah, I mean the most amazing guy I've seen speak about that is definitely uh, Scorsese, where you see him uh, talk about his movies or his influences, and that guy's like a walking talking encyclopedia of, he's like america's film historian like yeah who, who, and you can listen i can listen to that guy talk forever yeah. um, about movies and influences and he's so passionate about everything and he loves it and it trips out of that guy um you know and yeah the great ones just know about it and they have just this different uh personas how they get it across um but yeah they're they're I mean, I think you need to have a real deep love for this thing. You know, you need to really... Because there's so much bullshit you got to deal with. I mean, you got to deal with bullshit in, in any profession, in any walk of life. But to get a movie made... Yeah, financed, out, of here, out of here is like an act of God to get a movie made. I know, um, I mean, especially now. And it's like, you know, if you don't have that love, I think this is what I was getting to when I was trying to paraphrase Seinfeld. Um if it's not like life or death for you, if it's not like there's no plan B, this is my thing. I'm all in yeah, and nothing's going to stop me. You know, like even if you have 98% of that, it's probably going to be tough. Like you've got to be somebody who's at a hundred percent. Yeah, you really do. You got to love it. You know, it's got to be the love of the game, you know, otherwise there's too, there's too many people. There's too many. It's really just, there's so many obstacles to get there that, you know, if there's nothing to fall back on, you know, uh, you know, it's like, uh, what was it? Just watching recently the last um, Chris Nolan Batman movie where he needs to jump, make the jump. And he's like, oh, well, he did it with the child, did it with no rope. That's how he made it. You have to have the fear, you know, either you're going to crash or you're going to get there. So he does it with no rope and he makes the jump, uh, you know, and I think that's what you need. You need. 
you know, I, I, you know, you need to have make some money along the way, but there's just, you know, you got to keep going and going and going and going. And then eventually, hopefully, if you also have, have some talent that would help as well, but, uh, <laughs> never hurts, never hurts, uh, that, you know, you, you find, uh, that you can make the jump. So how, how did you, how did you break in? What was your first break? Um, you know, when I first got out of here, people were saying to me, oh, well, you know, uh, I got a buddy in TV and write TV. So I said, all right, well, I'll write a couple of, um, spec, uh, shows. That's what they were doing back then. So I wrote a couple of, you know, spec, you know, Seinfeld and Frasers and a couple Simpsons and very quickly. And, and then off of that, I, very quickly got an agent and a manager and i it was, this it, was, was e- like, it was easy it, it seemingly was easy i mean i was just literally uh i had a friend from nyu who i was like playing poker with and uh his buddy was like an assistant in an agency and he's like oh well you know send me your stuff so i quickly wrote a few of these things not you know very fast What's very fast? Like a week? Uh, I think it, it was like I wrote three of them in like, you know, a couple months or something yeah. like that. Very, you know, revision, revision, just like a, maybe six weeks, something like that. Um, sent it to them and they're like, awesome. And so uh, quickly got a, a manager and it seemed like, okay, this is uh, great. This is going well. Green lights. Green lights. Everyone thinks this is hilarious. Um, and then it just, you know, got a few meetings here and there, and but nothing happened with the TV. I said, well, I really want to, you know, write uh, a movie. And, you know, still wanted to direct, uh, but I had, like, literally, like, no money. And so I thought, well, I should try and pay some bills out here. So, but I was just doing odd things here and there. So I wrote, um, I wrote a Christmas movie. Um, cause I just, I missed the East coast. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia. I missed Philadelphia. I missed the cold. And it was like, it was so such a culture shock moving to LA. It was like sunny all the time. <laughs> and it was like freaking, it was freaking me out. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's like, wow, it's just, I don't, this is just so not me. Uh, so just to comfort myself, I wrote a Christmas movie and, um, that was a romantic comedy. What was it called? It was called Christmas in New Jersey. Okay. And, uh, off of that, um, I got, um, another agent, um, uh, a more featured uh, movie agent. And so, that opened up. I met like everyone. I met went on like so many meetings, and but the main question they're asking me is like, "This is great," but you know, and that got that got optioned a couple times, I think. Um, yeah. So the script sold. The script got optioned, yeah, for you know, little bit of money, right? Um, and so I guess the foot was tentatively in the door, but at least it's it's a, at least it's an affirmation. People aren't saying, yeah. eh, you know, if you, you have, like, whatever you're making, the doors are opening at least a little bit. A little bit. There was a crack in there. Meaning you were going to studio lots, which is like, oh, I'm on a studio lot. That's this fun. Is, this is great. 
This is super fun. Just wandering around there for days. Like, this is where they actually make right. movies, you know. I can stand out, see her, watch, like, people walk in and out with cardboard all day, you know. Right. Uh, <laughs> Driving past on golf carts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was like it was like heaven. And, um, you know, but the main question was, in all these meetings, like, you know, Love this. What's next? Right. So I was like, huh, they keep asking that question. It's it's crazy. Like, no matter what, it feels like they always want one more thing. It's like you, you, there's like no amount of material you could possibly have that's ever enough. No. It's always the <laughs> what's the thing around the corner. So I thought um, the next idea, uh, and that was Elf. And so... Another Christmas movie. Another Christmas movie. You were movie. doubling down on Christmas movies. I was movies. doubling down. Uh, I did, you know, it was still that thing where I was like, it was sunny outside. And it was like, you know, n- you know, late November. I was like, dude, I just cannot deal with this anymore. And um, it's it was comforting to me to write, you know, uh, a movie, you know, based and, in the East Coast. And you love, is it more about like the East Coast vibe and missing winter and gray skies and that whole thing? Uh, or do you have like a real love of Christmas? Both, all. Uh, it's also Christmas is a great time for storytelling. You know, it's a great uh, storytelling venue. Um, and uh, you know, I just the, the stories just comforted me personally at that time. So sat down, wrote that relatively quickly. Um, what does that mean? That was not long. That was like. You know, two months, something like that. You wrote Elf in two months? The first pass of that, yes. How many passes were there? I mean, like I how, how close was the first pass to what we see on the screen? I mean, it was, had all the bases there, hmm. you know, all the structural things, all the characters, everything like that. And you talk about writing to comfort yourself. Like, is that the mode emotionally that you work from? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, are you writing to sort of soothe? Yeah. I'm, suiting, I'm writing to entertain myself. I'm writing... I write characters that I want to be around, that I want to see go through a struggle, come out the other side, you know, generally in a comedic fashion. I like seeing normal people go through extraordinary circumstances, uh, a lot of times with some kind of magical elements in there. Um, but I think that that heightens it. But it, you know, as long as you play the reality for reality, um, I think that is a good element with comedies and you know feel good movies. Uh, and, that, and essentially, at the end of the day, that's what I want to. Do. I want to write a movie with uh, that has some hope, that has some message of you know we can go through all these things and come out the other side. Uh, and I think you can do that very comedically. So wrote that um, that also uh, opened up a lot of doors um came very close to selling a lot uh eventually sold eventually sold a couple times to a different couple different people uh options um and then um uh that script um and another script got me to uh, a manager uh, named John Berg uh, who uh, was leaving Universal at the time. He was an executive, started his own management company, and uh, he was great. Uh, great friends, great... Uh, Is he still your manager? 
he um, was my manager for a decade. He now is uh, essentially running DC Films for Warner Brothers. So okay. he's doing very well. Uh, one of my good friends. And so he sort of showed me how this whole thing works. And Which is how? I don't know. Ask him. <laughs> Let's get him on the phone. Um, but he was great. I mean, he, he sort of knew a lot of people, and he you know, was a hilarious guy, and he could show me, you know, you know it's sort of the ins and outs of things. And he um, sent the script to uh, Disney, who were starting this thing called the Disney Writing Program, which was like they hire like three guys a year, and they bring you in. It's like the old studio system where... They have a few people uh, on the lot in offices, and they just, you know... It's like an incubator. Incubator. And basically, whatever work they need, if they need a rewrite, if they need, you know, a punch-up, if whatever they have going on, you'll get put on it at some point. But also, you're writing um, a script for them that you'll start from scratch and see it through. So, Elf got me into that program which is kind of like a graduate school i mean i imagine it was very instructive right like oh know. it was yeah it was it was great um first of all you're on the lot um you're have access to these executives so it's not like you're going in you know seeing the executive pitching them an idea you're working in c- conjunction with them coming up with stuff um and some of the executives there were great at the time and so are you pitching like for your original script are you formulating ideas, bouncing them off these executives and getting their kind of... Uh... Yeah, I think you, from what I can recall, it was like you uh, had a few ideas, you bounce them around a room, um, you know, they see which one sticks for them. They're having meetings saying, hey, what's in our... What do we want to develop? What do we want to throw, you know, the way of these guys who we have on staff here? Or, you know, what films do we want developed? And... You know, um, what came out of that was, you know, they uh, wanted um, a film developed from The Haunted Mansion, The Ride. And um, so I started working on that and um, developed that and was working on other things while I was there. And then, you know, uh, at the time, New Line wanted to option Elf. So they optioned Elf and then, you know, Haunted Mansion started going. So... It was very incredibly fortuitous circumstances. And, and New Line is the, they, they eventually made the film we know. Correct. Okay. Yes. So that's like, like, when did it get real? Like when they optioned it? And when did like Will Ferrell attach? Uh, Will Ferrell attached um, first and then uh, John Favreau came on and then... Uh, and then after that, the movie started going. So basically, it was, you know, went from not real for after a long time. And I was so, I didn't know what was going on. I was hearing this through my manager. of Like, it, it might go, no, they don't think they're going to do it. And, you know, well, we have problems here. Or we can't, if we can't cast the dad, we're not going to do it. And they really want this guy. And maybe he's going to do it. Maybe he's not. And it was very start and stop, which I have come to learn it's uh, generally the case. Right. Um, and I've had a lot of more stops and starts. And so eventually that just kind of went. And, uh, you know, so that was great. And I didn't realize at the time how 
fortuitous and lucky that is for films to actually go. Um, and then you've got a great director working on it. You've got Will Ferrell uh, coming into it. And he really, at the end of the day, if Will Ferrell's not in that movie, that movie's not what it is today. You know, it's, that a, really... it's a classic Christmas film. Thank you. Um, I think that's inarguable. Like, it's in the can. I am not going to argue with you. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't think anybody listening. I mean, can, can you really... I mean, like, you can... If you went out into the street and asked people to name five classic Christmas movies, I bet it would be on a lot of lists. Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life is one of my favorite movies. Um, that was in the architecture of the original script. It was definitely, and there was a lot of uh, Frank Capra. He wanted a uh, comedy, um, you know, to stand out, but you also wanted the heart. And a lot of the heart, initially, I was watching a lot of Frank Capra when I was writing that. Um, and, you know, you wanted the, the always the pitfall of that film could have been okay this is going to be one long sketch of you know a big elf comes to manhattan okay we get it uh what i think hopefully that was in there was that it was about something more than that it had heart and you cared about this big elf coming to manhattan it wasn't just a, a skit um it's got a lot of heart what the film's got a lot of heart thank you Yes, yes. Um, so, and, and that's from everybody who worked on that film. You know, it was... Um, Did you get to go on the set? I was. I was up there. They were shooting in Vancouver, and uh, it was great. It was great to see it coming alive. You know, it's kind of strange and surreal to see... Uh, Will Ferrell in tights. <laughs> Will Ferrell in tights, see this whole thing happening. I mean, he... You know, I thought he was hilarious on SNL. He had shot old school at the time but it had not come out yet oh so um, this is like before he was a movie star um i mean this sort of made him a movie star uh a well they before. were trying to get anchorman going at the time and uh they had written that and that was a hilarious i love that movie and uh you know yeah so he was like you know he was taking a, a huge leap because he was playing a character essentially in tights walking around Manhattan, which is, in theory, an insane idea, <laughs> you know, which was, I thought it was hilarious. But it's like a big chance for an actor, um, you know, looking back at it now, it doesn't seem like a big chance. But back then it, it was. And once again, without I just don't think without him. I can't really think of anyone else in that role. But isn't that the case with all movies that work is that. Like, I mean, that's, that's what we, we kind of talked about this earlier about how insane it is that anything gets made or how difficult it is to make movies because, um, you know, the money and all the moving parts. But whenever I see a movie that works, the first thing that I think about is, well, they got the casting right. If you don't have the casting right, nothing works. Yeah. You're pretty, you're pretty much sunk from square one. And I think, you know. Uh, even the casting around that, a lot of that was John Favreau, who, you know, um, you know, had Bob Newhart, had James Caan, who, you know, kind of anchor the film, anchor the reality of a unreal situation, you know, ground it to make it real, even though it's a fantasy, you know, but you believe in those characters, you want them to see it, you want to see come out the other end you want to see this family who's a little bit disjointed 
come together. You want to see that sleigh fly at the end of the movie, you know, um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's what I was thinking of. I mean, literally the sleigh flying is literally, I was watching ET and that's when the, when the bicycles, you know, take off, that's, you know, a reference to that exact point in the movie, you know, I didn't, boom, makes sense now. Uh, I didn't think of that when I, I just watched, I mean, I want to say I watched Elf. I watched Elf and E.T. with my kids recently, like within the last few well, months. Well, one definitely influences the other. Yeah. It was just like, I remember sitting in the theater watching E.T. And, you know, when that when those bicycles take off, your heart sort of leaps. And I, I always put that away. And I thought, oh, well, well I can use that at some point. Uh, and I feel the same thing when that slate takes off at the end. And that's, you know, due to the credit of everyone who worked on that movie to make that moment pop and stand out and, and they, everything we should, that was anything shot in new york yeah yeah they, okay. they totally ran around manhattan grabbing shots of like him running around and getting you know grabbing flyers and stuff like that um and the the end with the the flight you know they were grabbing b-roll there all the time grabbing plates there um but a lot of it was shot what does in that Vancouver. mean grabbing plates just background stuff oh okay like of you know uh, for visual effects. Um, but most of it was Vancouver. And so when do you, you go to the premiere? Like when did you, like when you saw the movie, you must've been thrilled. Cause you know, like as a writer, it's sort of out of your hands once the director takes it. And then, you yeah, know. you don't know what you're going to see. You I know. didn't know what I was going to see. I was hopeful that it was in the, the right hands and it turned out to be in the absolute right hands. I mean, it was a, a lot of people who's, you know, you know, John Favreau had made made before that, and he came in with the exact right take uh, of how to do it. He wanted to do a movie with heart. He wanted to do a Christmas film that would stand the test of time, and he did. And um, you know, but you don't know when you're walking in how is this movie going to translate. There's so many things. If you make one wrong choice on a film, it could sink the whole thing. Like you were saying with casting, right? Casting is, you know, a big part of the thing. Um, it was casted right. Had the right director. I was, I was just going to say, like, I agree with you. And then I also, uh, what also comes to mind for me is that there are certain movies that I would say are quote unquote bad that somehow work. Mm-hmm. Um, like the casting sort of off, but yet it's perfect. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to say. Like, it's a weird amalgamation. Yeah. It's like, it's like weird how there's so many moving pieces in these movies that you know there's so many pushing and pulling and getting the right thing and the right guy comes in the right guy falls off and you know you're not even talking about the politics of the whole thing which is another thing to have to deal with um but when it actually works it's amazing it's and a little bit of magic it's totally magic and you know uh yeah seeing there was uh it was great it was amazing you know um uh, do you cry did I cry in the theater? My mom cried for me. My yeah. mom was like a mess, uh-huh. you know. Uh, everyone was happy except for her. She was like barely standing <laughs> up, um, uh, you know, and like you know, she you know harassed James Con. I think throughout the whole thing, and I said to James Con, "Oh, my mom loves you." And he said, "Yeah, I know." She told me like three times already. Um, and- was everyone nice to you? Because like like the old trope. Um, you know, in movies about Hollywood is that the screenwriter is always sort of like persona non grata. He's not wanted on set. His opinions are disrespected. Like once you've written the thing, 
it's, you know, you're sort of, they're sort of done with you or, or every once in a while, you know, there's a director who's particularly respectful. Yeah, it depends on the people. It depends on the people involved. Luckily on this, you know, John uh, Berg was the manager and he also produced the film. Uh, so, you know, uh, that was incredibly helpful, you know, having uh, my friend, my guy being the producer of the movie, Todd Komernicki, um, is John's partner, and he formed a company called Guy Walks Into a Bar. So John and Todd um, were producers of the film. So they're, you know, good friends of mine, great guys. Todd actually just wrote Sully, the Clint Eastwood film. Yeah. So, you know, he's a writer who... It made a big splash. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Yeah. Sorry. Couldn't uh, so Todd is a, is a guy who wanted to uh, produce things that he went kind of right. So he writes more dramatic fare, uh, and he wanted to see, you know, other things on the screen and get stuff done. So he came on, formed this company, and luckily this company made Elf. Wow. So your kids have seen it. I mean, that's, that's kind of cool, right? You know, like Dad wrote Elf. You, we, wrote a, we wrote a Christmas. It's on, it's on every year on tv yeah they yeah they, they they're like ah, it's okay you know they're <laughs> yeah. not so impressed they're not so impressed they're not so impressed well, I'm, I'm impressed i love the movie good as long as, you, as long as you're impressed so let's go let's let's go backwards now and yeah. i want to take i want to take apart the process of how you come up with these ideas because um you know screenwriting for feature films in particular i think is a very particular kind of storytelling there's a real structure to it yeah um it's like kind of like watchmaking is sort of the analogy i use you know like the pieces have to fit together you have to hit certain beats there are certain emotional expectations that an audience whether they know it or not uh is pre-wired to expect yeah and you know you have to deliver that but how, how do you how does an idea start for you? Is there a sim- is there a similarity or a through line from project to project? Do you keep a note file? Do you have epiphanies while you know walking? Like what is it that? Yeah, it comes from everywhere and anywhere. You know, your ideas. You know, if you're thinking that way, and I'm always thinking that way, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Could I use that somewhere or in something? Or that's an interesting character. Uh, love to see that guy in a movie um or you know i'm always trying to uh, put a um ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances i'm looking for those kinds of things um that just appeal to me and then you if you sometimes when you're connecting different ideas to you're connecting pieces of the puzzle and sometimes that puzzle piece will go to this puzzle piece and then that is a movie. Um, so it can like come two, from two disparate ideas, two disparate ideas you connect and somehow you go, Oh, well that's an interesting combination of things. Um, and it, it can come from anywhere, like a conversation you're having. Um, so for instance, for elf, like where did the idea of, uh, you know, a grown, I, grown man as an uh, elf? I remember being in, uh, an apartment I was sharing with a couple of roommates. We were talking one night, uh, you just said, oh, you know, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? And I thought, hmm, I think I'm going to sit down and write that. Um, and it was just simple of a nugget of an idea, some uh, little nugget of an idea that I thought 
was a funny combination of things, you know. Um, uh, you know, it's basically a very universal story of like, uh, you know, Moses going down the river and, you know, being adopted by the Egyptians. And it's like, or a boy being raised by, you know, apes, you know, right. it's right. a, it's a very universal tale. And I thought it was never told in this way before. And also comedically, you know, a boy who's, who grows up to be, you know, six foot two, um, in, in, you know, in the North pole, uh, is a funny setup. And then, you know, where does it go from there? Well, I want to have him go back to New York. And New York's always a great place for fish out of water stories. So you put them two together and then you have something that might just work. Now, do you do an outline? Like you say you get the idea in this apartment and it sparks something in you. But like, what's really next? Like, do you literally just sit down and start banging out in final draft, or do you sit? Yeah, down? if you're, I, I yeah, I just start writing scenes. I go all over the map. Like, oh, I know, I I want this. Uh, this is a cool scene. I know that I want this somewhere late in the second act, or oh, this is a cool image that I want to take from here. And I structurally, I kind of know, you know, the general beats of it. Where does the first act break? You know, do, do uh, you write an outline, or do you, you generally just, no? You're just thinking. You have it in your head. I have it. Uh, a kind of an idea in my head. I know where it kind of goes, and I like to just freeform it. Now, when I'm working with a studio, working with producers, then if they want an outline, then I'm we're going to work off an outline. But generally, if I'm doing a spec, I'm just kind of winging it. I'm just kind of making it up as I go. And do you care about, like, I mean, because uh, screenplays tend to be, I don't know, about 105 to 120 pages long. Yeah. Um, in that first draft, are you allowing yourself to go to like 150 pages? Do you just keep no. right? No, no, I, I cannot, uh, I, you know, I know a lot of friends who do that. Just go, it, it's just long this time. And I, I cannot, I'm like very, uh, specific about, you know, where I am in the story and like, am I too long for where I need to be at this moment? It just drives me crazy. So I'm very, I know where I want to hit certain moments uh, just to make things move. You know, you don't, you want to tell a great story. You don't want to be boring. And that's, that's why they call them movies, right? Yeah. It keeps moving. We're telling a story. We're keeping the, you know, pedals of the metal here. Um, so if, if the story is progressing, if there's interesting turns, um, you know, and, and I want to know where the turns are in the story. Uh, I have them in my head. So I know I'm going forward and I'm letting the character sort of explore a little bit, but I also know structurally, you know, if you have your structure down, you're okay. Just kind of free forming it. And what informs your notions of structure? Like, are you somebody who you, you took a screenwriting class in, in film school and the textbook that you had or the teacher that you had put you on the path? Are you one of these, uh, was it Robert McKee or Sid Field people, Not or is, really, it, is no. it all intuitive based on your massive consumption of film? Yeah, I think it's HBO. I give the credit to HBO as a young age. Um, no, I, I don't. I just kind of have, you know, I know three-act structure. That's kind of what I'm uh, basing it on. Um, but it's all... Well, well, I, I mean, how do you define that? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, is it is there a simplicity to it, or is it basically just like... You introduce the characters, introduce you put them the in a situation. You know, what what kind of journey are they going to go on? Where does the first act break? You know, what are they looking for? What's their journey about? How are they going to how are they going to find and change on the journey? You know, what's going to be the 
the lowest moment for them on this journey when they've sort of lost everything and then somehow they find a way through all of that and they come out the other end stronger. And I think, you know, that's people are looking for movies and, you know, transformation. They're looking for hope. They're looking for uh, to have a relatability to things that they're going through in their own lives. You're and, not a cynic. Uh, you know, if you would talk to people about me, they said I would be a cynic, but in the movies, when I'm alone in a room, I want things to go well. Right. So deep down, I'm not a cynic, but if you would talk to people who know me, they say, oh, well, that guy's sarcastic. Well, but I mean, in the real, in the real world, cynical, but in the fantasy realm or in the world of your imagination, that makes sense to me. Like, you know, the, there's plenty of cynicism and darkness and difficulty in real life, like why not create a space imaginatively where you can indulge your, yeah, your yeah, optimism? I don't want to be around, uh, you know, I don't want to be the, around the suicide movies from NYU. You know, I, wanna, <laughs> I, 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 you know, there's not, you know, there's not enough time in the day. I want uh, the things that you're putting out there, you know, to inspire and make people's lives a little bit better. I think that should be what we're trying to do here um so uh, dark movies don't really super dark movies don't really appeal to me do mm. like film noir though yeah yeah i'm kind of the same way more so that way ever since i had kids like i feel like my tolerance for watching super violent stuff it's just like it it affects me more i don't know yeah or maybe i'm just getting older <laughs> <laughs> i think you're just getting older <laughs> i mean you're, not that i'm not, ancient dude yeah i know not that i want to like be one of these you know parents who's like wagging his finger but it's like you know certain movies are just so bleak and it's like god i don't have enough time i can't you know yeah life's hard enough i don't need to two hours of this no i don't need to be hammered with that kind of stuff i yeah. want uh you know uh you know my wife's the other end she's just like watching talking animal movies and i can only take so much of talking animal movies but uh she wants super happy, and I just want things that have, you know, like, it's a wonderful life. There's a movie with that's a, a message. Dark, but that's a dark movie. There's, I mean, that's there's, a dark movie, yeah. but at the other end, there's a strong message mm -hmm. where you come out, and you couldn't have a stronger message, like right. saying, you know, your life touched all these people, and it wasn't for you how much different would these lives have been. You know, you've made a difference, George Bailey. Like, that is a message of hope. Right. So, okay, so I'm imagining that the success of Elf opened a lot of doors. Yeah, it was phenomenal. It was great. Um, had a lot of other stuff going at the time and opened up, you know, a tremendous amount of doors. Met a lot of people. It's okay, so for people listening who might be aspiring screenwriters or just curious outside looking in, you know, you think like, oh, somebody wrote a Christmas classic. It's on TV every year on a million channels. Like, is this a movie that supports you for the rest of your life? Or was it like a one-time payment? You know what I'm saying? Like, what is it? What's in it for the screenwriter? Well, there are uh, things called residuals, which um, God bless them, um, one and all, uh, everyone, um, that do come and that are, you know, uh, basically when things pay on paid TV or you know dvds there's a percentage that you know that do you know do come in the mail so that is a you know helpful annuity now granted over time they go down down and out so no it's not a thing that's going to be um 
going to take care of you for the rest of your life. That seems uh, unjust to me. You created <laughs> I this know. thing. Um, because like, this is a thing. Like, it's obviously a hugely collaborative art form. And you can't diminish the efforts of everybody that that goes into it. Uh, like, not least of whom, uh, you know, Favreau and, and Will Ferrell. I mean, without them... Yeah, you would but, have nothing. But yeah. the, the truth is that the screenwriter is the originator of the material. Um, I'm yeah, on the side I mean, of the writer. Grant, you know, <laughs> it, it's such a boon to get residuals. They're a great, great thing. So I'm not... I'm so thankful, and my family is so thankful that they exist. Right. And yes, it is something that plays again and again and again. So it's a it's a great thing. Now, you know, living in Los Angeles with two young children, there, you know, you're. There's, <laughs> it seems to be they, these children are expensive. It right. seems um, so. Um, that you know, it, it Peter, it start you know, it peters out, but you know, there's a little kick every year, which is nice. And, um, and doors opened up. You said you work, you've worked with a lot of different people. Um, do I have in my head? Like, did you work with George Lucas? I did. That was uh, a really incredible uh, experience um, and honor. Really, he's like you know, sitting in a room with one of your heroes is really. What's he like? like? What's something. he like? Because you know, I see everybody knows the public persona. He's sort of he's sort of like an affable. To me, it came across as like a warm, affable, everyman guy who likes to eat hamburgers. Um, he's like, uh, you know, I would. You know, sitting in a room, I want to ask him out, hey, you want to go grab a beer? But you can't. He's George Lucas. You can't ask him he wants to grab a beer. Um, but he's like, uh, you know, it, it was quite stunning to me to be in a room with this guy. What was the project? Uh, the project was an animated musical that eventually became a film called Strange Magic. And I was sort of like in the middle leg of that tour um and george had it in his mind i think for like 15 years and i was sort of like i was like uh in the middle of that and then there was a director named gary reitstrom who came on after me and you know i thought they did a great job you know doing what george wanted to do at the end of that film and uh but you know sitting in a room with him you know i got to say you know Quite honestly, and from my heart, you know, you've made films that have changed my life. Uh, no ifs, ands, or buts. You about said it. that to him. Absolutely. What yeah. did he say? He so thank said, you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, he, you know, he gets it all the time. I yeah, you know, it was it was it was a surreal experience when you're sitting in a room talking about a story on something, beating it out, uh, but you can't shake it, or I couldn't shake it. Um, from my head that, you know, I'm sitting two feet from the guy who created Star Wars and Indiana Jones and basically formed a good formation of my life and, uh, you know, did so much more with, like, you know, created all this, you know, you know, with the computer editing and THX and he's such a futurist. Um, he did so much for film. So... And he's a story. I think deep down, he's a storyteller. He's a great storyteller. So sitting um, and sort of talking about films and movies with this guy, and I got to ask him questions, and he would 
he would indulge and he would tell me stories about, you know, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. He was generous about that stuff. Totally generous. And, you know, I think he knew it was coming from a place of uh, admiration and just, just you know, genuine. Yeah, I'm a f- total film nerd. So, uh, you know, you're sitting, he's a master. So you want to hear these stories. And he would indulge me and other people in the movie about how these came, things came about. Did you get any like like unexpected like anecdotes or something where I don't know. It's, I don't mean to put you on the spot. It's hard when you ask these um, kinds of questions, but it's like did he did he tell you something about Han Solo that we just don't know? <laughs> well, he did tell me uh which I did not realize that uh, uh that Chris Walken was uh originally one of the people who were supposed to be Han Solo. Oh, I think he was I think they were testing with like he was with some other woman and then some other Luke. And then there was, you know, obviously Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. Uh, but there was like, th- I believe that, but I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, he said it was like Chris Walken who was close to being Han Solo, which would have been really, <laughs> really different, really interesting. <laughs> you know, you know, I think this is like in his, uh, he had that great scene in Annie Hall. I remember seeing the Annie Hall where he's like, uh, Alvy, I tell you this, because as an artist, I think you understand. And you remember that great scene, and he's a lunatic, and he goes, uh, he's like, and then the dad's like, well, I'm finishing my drink. Dwayne can drive you. And, you know, he's talking about smashing into, like, head-on into the cars and stuff. But, uh, so, no, he wasn't Han Solo at the end of the day. But, um, but yeah, anyway, great experience. Cool, super cool hanging out at um, Skywalker Ranch and... Super cool. The film was uh, up and running um, at uh, Big Rock, um, and I was working with this guy, Kevin Monroe, uh, at the time, and, um, you know, it was was a really cool, uh, surreal experience. Wow. What about anything else? Like, what are the stories that you always tell? I'm sure you get asked by people who don't work in the business, like, what it's like. I mean, you must have, you have the the George Lucas story, you have Elf. Like, what else is there... um, well, sitting down and talking to you right now, I'm going to be telling this to my grandchildren this one time. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's been a crazy kind of ride. I mean, uh, this is what I always dreamed about doing. And the fact that it's uh, that, you know, movies have come into existence that I've worked on. Um, and that you a- sat two feet from Lucas. Like, was that the moment when you said... This is it. I've realized it. Has there been such a moment? No, but I, you know, you know, I knew at that moment it was something I would never forget and sort of treasure. Uh, you know, you, you know, when the guy walked into a room, uh, you know, I never got over like, you know, okay, wow, that's George Lucas. You know, I don't, I've never met Steven Spielberg, but I assume that would be the same feeling. Like these are the guy, like basically the two guys who like, Made it made present Maybe, Hollywood, you know, form my brain um, and my heart, and uh, so you know, it was uh, surreal, as I as I said, and it was uh, great to see that um, in that working environment, he was amazing and generous, and you know, had not, a, not an you know, asshole. <laughs> no, no, had a quirky sense of humor, and uh, um, you know, it was great. So what about horror stories? Because, I mean, those are, those are very common in Hollywood. Like, if you have Once those- again, this podcast, uh, <laughs> it's going to wrap all into one. 
Um, but I mean, you know, like the, it's a difficult profession. Uh, writers are often poor, you know, treated poorly. Uh, have you had experiences that have been like sort of mind blowingly? Yeah. Awful? I mean, you run into brick walls, you, you know, pour your heart into things and then, um, a studio executive leaves or, uh, you know, an actor falls out and everything that you worked on is basically over in the matter of minutes. Um, um, uh, you know, and I've, you know, so your heart breaks, you know, you put your everything into something you want it to happen, you know, and you're, especially when you're speeding, you're running a thousand miles an hour towards something, you know, once you run into the brick wall, it hurts, you know, uh, there's no two ways around it, but that's, you got to get up again. It takes a little bit, but you got to get excited about something else again. Uh, there's no, that's what the business that we're in. This is the business that we've chosen, as Michael Corleone would say. And there's no, you take the good with the bad. No, so I've had awesome things happen and I've had terrible things happen. It's life, you know, it's like, uh, it's just the way it goes. So if you're getting into this thing, you gotta know there's gonna be rejection upon rejection, you know. Even still for you today. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, people, yeah, people don't respond to ideas. Um, you know, some people do, and and then you know, and then some people uh, respond to other ideas that you don't think are your best stuff. You're like, oh, but people people love that one and not this one, which I thought was great. You just never know. You never know what's around the corner, uh, which is the fun and scary part. Now, uh, what about the future of the film business? Like, do you feel? Because I, you know, it can feel to me, and again, this may just be a, a personal uh, where I'm at in my life. The fact that I have young children, the fact that I'm uh, getting older, I don't know what it is, but like, I don't keep up. Uh, I don't get to the theater as much as I used to it sort of freaks me out. Cause it's always been such a central part of my leisure life or whatever. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like going yeah. to the theater is like a ritual for me. Totally. When I was in high school, I went to a movie by myself every Sunday night, which sounds sort of pathetic, but like, <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved it. Right. You know, like yeah. it was, it was sort of like a escape and it's a sanctuary it's a sanctuary and so um you know it's it's getting harder and harder it seems to get movies made that are not these tentpole movies based on a comic book or you know like what's happening to the film business is it going the way of the music business where you know things digitalized and fractalized and people are going to just want to put on their their virtual reality headset or watch at home do you know what i'm saying like yeah um the the answer is at the moment, you can definitely feel, at least in the movie business, that things are shrinking, consolidating. Um, you know, there are, you know, people putting a lot of money in these big movies. Um, so they want to get, you know, the bang for the buck. So there is, you know, the superhero genre, which is, you know, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of these movies are great. These super, if they're, coming from great characters and, you know, going great rides. But, you know, there is a middle of the business that is sort of going away. Um, But, you know, so I don't know where it will go or where it will end. Um, What are like, what are the conversations that you're having with people in the business? Is this on, is this on the lips of a lot of people? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, people are noticing that, you know, Things aren't the way they were five, ten years ago. Um, things are different. Things are changing. Now, TV is 
you know, having sort of a golden age, which is great. So a lot of, you know, my friends who wrote movies are getting TV and I've sort of, you know, dipped my toe into that water as well. It's a great, another avenue to tell, way to tell stories. So I think, you know, not all ideas are meant to be movies. Some ideas lend themselves to a longer form of storytelling. So having TV there and that sort of exploding in a way is another great avenue to tell, you know, certain characters that you want to you tell. Um, so now the movie business, I don't know what's going to happen with it. I just, you know, know that I've got some stories that I want to tell. So I'm going to sit down and write them. And um, hopefully there'll be someone who responds to them. Uh, so that's, I think, the only choice that I have. And the people who are aspiring to get into it, you know, if you have a story to tell, you got to tell it. And that's really the end of the story. Well, I think that's a great place to stop. Let's and, do it. And- stop. Let's end this madness. <laughs> it's been great talking with you. I appreciate you coming over and I wish you all the best. Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. All right, guys, if you enjoy this podcast, please know that you can support it over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Your support matters, helps keep the show going. Another way to support the program is to write reviews over at iTunes. Those reviews do make a difference. So if you want to write a review of the program, you can do that over at iTunes. That was David Barenbaum, screenwriter of the movie Elf. Great time talking with him. You can check out his uh, filmography over at IMDb. I don't know if he's got a Twitter. I'm not sure. Did I, I couldn't find it. A cursory glance at the internet did not yield a David Barenbaum Twitter, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own free app. It's called the Other People with Brad Listy app. Just go to your app store, look for Other People with Brad Listy, and there it will be free of charge. Great way to listen to the show. New episodes automatically upload. It's very user-friendly. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. If you want to write to me, the address again is letters at otherppl.com. So yeah, I removed myself from Twitter. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Speaking of uh, Walter not being on Instagram... I bailed on Twitter this past week. I, you know, I have been talking about this ad nauseum. I don't want to overdo it. I'm not, I don't want to sound overly proud of myself. This is more about me just trying to wrest control of my psyche from the clutches of Donald Trump uh, and so on and so forth. Just stop wasting time. But, uh, you know, after the election, I sort of stopped. I'm like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to constantly be checking Twitter. And it was yielding good results. I've been reading a lot of books. I've been having uh, a more meaningful existence. Less stressful. Less grinding. And uh, then over the past, you know, 10 days or so, I could feel myself creeping back. It was creeping back. I I was losing my discipline. So I said, fuck it. And I deactivated my accounts. So now the only way to keep up with the show is to go to the website... There's, I do have a Facebook, but Facebook's automated. I guess I could automate Twitter, but Twitter's too tempting. Facebook doesn't even tempt me. I have no desire. But, uh, I don't know. 
Is this gonna fuck things up because I don't have social media? Is my life over? Stay tuned. Maybe I'll go back. I don't. I don't know. Just trying my best.